everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Vlad. We are excited to continue our conversation on SCADA, and we'd like to welcome Phil Saboa on. Uh, Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure actually chatting with you guys. And as I said, it's been a long time coming. I've been a long time watcher of, of you guys' content and you're doing a really great job. Thank you so much for joining us today, Phil. Before we dive into the main topic of SCADA and sort of unravel its mysteries, complexities, and etc., could we get a, a bit of a background about yourself? How did you get started in your career? How did you progress in, uh, in manufacturing automation? And what are you doing today? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is very different to the traditional, I guess, electrical <laughs> type backgrounds. I've been a very, I guess up and down windy road type of career so i started when i was 16 years old almost 20 years ago now or more than 20 years ago now uh, as an electrical apprentice uh, for a ele domestic electrician uh, over in london and uh, i got to work in some really interesting places being i uh, in hospitals in mental hospitals in uh, factory floors up in rooftops uh, you know, do installing CCTV systems, fire alarm systems, uh, you know, domestic lighting, running cables, getting really, I guess, real hard graft. And especially in uh, in London where it gets pretty cold, we're, we're uh, pulling in cables that are rigid <laughs> stuff. And then we moved and then I kind of developed and, and moved over here into Australia and took some of those skill sets within uh, electric motor company doing uh, electric um, motor, uh, I guess, modifications. Uh, and then I started running that, uh, running all the administration for that workshop. And then I moved into sales and I was like, okay, let's give this a go. It's a pretty, it's pretty interesting uh, field where you get to meet so many different people. And that's what I'm more, you know, interested in is that customer service type application, getting to know my customers, getting to interact with all these different wild and wonderful applications. And so and then I moved into uh, a, another role, which was for huge transformer manufacturer who was uh, making insulation materials for high voltage transformers. Um, and then kind of that was a whole different industry, what, uh, you know, from that domestic and industrial background into a utility type infrastructure. So it kind of broadens, keeps broadening my industry knowledge in that space as well. And then I moved on to um, Phoenix Contact, which, uh, you know, for everyone that doesn't know is a huge terminal manufacturer, but they also are a huge automation focused company nowadays as well. And really kind of expanding that IoT um, platform and, getting up to speed and their PLCs are really maturing in that space as well. And, but they've got huge range of, of products within their portfolio. So I was able to learn a lot about industrial automation through the, that experience that I, that I had. And I got to really, I guess, learn the fundamentals of what it takes from the ground up in that OT layer mm -hmm. to be able to accumulate that amount of data, distribute it within a network infrastructure, and then be able to create that context layer that we, we talk about in, in SCADA uh, as well. So then once I was, I was really, I guess, really interested in that PLC next type uh, infrastructure, 
and developing my skill set within within that ecosystem. And then I came across Ignition uh, as part of that learning curve. Um, and I really, I guess, saw the potential of that, uh, that product portfolio and joined um, the Australian distributor um, uh, eye controls uh, as part of that journey. And, I'm, and that kind of brings me up to current day. But yeah, I've done, uh, I guess, various different roles within my career from you know, from that maintenance type uh, application to manufacturing, to <laughs> to really cover off, and even a bus driver once upon a time as well. <laughs> Bill, if if I can uh, expand on one experience, I guess earlier in your career, the switch from you know being a technical expert to going into sales was that you know was that a planned event? Was that just a, a great opportunity that came up? And also. Maybe in hindsight, how was that transition, right? Was that something that you got trained on the job to do or did you have to maybe fill in with some courses, trainings? And I would say like in hindsight also, would you do things differently? Um, so it was a, a kind of a choice from my perspective. So they, the role that I was doing was, um, I guess I was modifying electric motors i was doing a lot of heavy lifting and my hands from the early days were getting a bit you know fatigued should i say what i didn't realize is i would be uh, um, transitioning a screwdriver to a keyboard which actually doesn't make too much difference in the long run um, but you know that I, and what i found is that actually my passion is with problem solving and customer service. I love that people to people interaction. And that's a key skill that you need for selling really, because you're really interacting with the people that you're, you're trying to solve problems for at the end of the day. Um, so that is a real core skill. It is something that you can learn and develop. It's not something that you necessarily have to have ingrained in your being. And I know a lot of system integrators and a lot of engineers and technical people aren't always the most, I guess, outbound uh, and, and um, not they're quite introverted people who kind of love what they do, um, but not necessarily be able to communicate that to large audiences or or even small rooms of teams. And 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 that's that's something that you can develop after practicing and, and upskilling your, yourself. Um, so absolutely training, there's a large range of free online training in terms of sales uh, resources that you can leverage um, and also paid courses, of course, um, in-person training is, is vital actually for that. I did sit, uh, you know, a five-day training course in my early days to kind of get the fundamentals of the sales process uh, as well, because that's something that really you need as, as part of a salesman. Uh, in that in that space yeah that makes a lot of sense i think uh, again a lot of people are considering that option and maybe don't have all the the information they need to maybe undertake that transition or maybe they don't even know that those options are available because i see more and more i want to say technical people that have those communication skills go into an area like sales as you said because it's it still gives them a chance to understand the technical aspects but figure out a solution that fits a, a specific customer, which I think personally is a very interesting kind of endeavor and 
there, there's nothing like dull in that, right? Because you're always going to different customers. And we can get into like specifics a bit later, but uh, I just think it's an interesting uh, choice uh, of career for sure. But uh, Phil, if we can expand to today, right? So fast forwarding, you've been uh, doing sales for quite a bit of time now. What are you doing in eye controls? And more specifically, I guess, what does eye controls like provide as well at, at this point? And also maybe point us a geographical location. I, I know you mentioned Australia, but you know who do you work with at what level of manufacturing and kind of who are your, your customers in general? Yeah, absolutely. So in, we're based in Brisbane. Our HQ is in Brisbane, which is on the east coast of uh, Australia. But we are a national, uh, we look after nationally. So we do look after the whole of Australia. So you may have seen me flying about um, servicing customers and going to exhibitions and trade shows and all that sort of stuff to try and, I guess, support that uh, ignition ecosystem. So as I controls, we are, uh, I guess, our, our motto is to enable uh, digital transformation. So we do that by bringing in technical um, technical products that um, really support our openness and our ethos in that, that area. And Ignition is a key part of that for us. So we are the Australian distributors for Ignition. Um, and we really try and have in-depth conversations with our customer base, whether that be end users or our, our system integrator partners to be able to create solutions for those end users that are really of high quality and of open structures, um, scalable um, uh, systems, and really, I guess, try and listen to the customer about what their problems are to be able to create a solution that really tackles that issue for them. Awesome. Yeah, I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh if I can, I guess, launch us into the SCADA conversation with, a, a, I guess, a fairly simple question, Phil. You know, so SCADA, maybe not not so simple, but SCADA, I feel, is, you know, when you say digital transformation, to some degree has gotten maybe like lost, right? Because we talk a lot about Industry 4.0, we talk about MES, we talk about data analytics, and SCADA is almost, to me, like the backbone of how that data kind of gets between devices. And although, you know, there's there's edge devices as well, there's now smarter PLCs and what have you, but are you having a lot of conversations around SCADA specifically, or do you think that, you know, other systems are sort of taking over the, um, the ecosystem, so to speak? Um, so SCADA is one part of a bigger picture at the end of the day you know, you've got various different layers in that stack to be able to accumulate your data. And, and SCADA is, is that, that acquisition layer, but you actually have to have a full strategy for digital transformation all the way up the stack. So that's from the collection point at the sensor so that you've got accurate de uh, data to be able to populate up you know, through the system. So from a SCADA level, we need to have that accurate data model all the way up so that we can potentially push it into the cloud. We don't have to start uh, data cleaning. We don't have to, you know, reconfigure everything at every stage of the, the process. So if we can get it, the data right at the sensor level with all the metadata and all the context around it, we do it once at the edge and we populate it all the way through the stack. Um, that's that's the best case scenario for everyone because for, from a, an ignition point of view, we're able to normalize that data for everyone 
to be able to access it. So that might be in third party products, that might be on different applications, different project levels, um, you know, to solve different problems within the business. So we're able to do that, you know, in a scalable way and, and, and using open technology. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would agree, you know, SCADA is just, a, I want to say, a small piece of the pie, but still fairly critical, right? Because ultimately, with a good foundation, you can make sure that the data upstream is, so to speak, correct, accurate, and, and contextualized to be processed. But I mean, to get back to that like conversation, do you see manufacturers talk a lot about maybe some of the challenges they're, they're experiencing on that side? Or do you see it being like more higher level, right? Like at the MES or maybe like data analytics, are they expressing concerns with uh, like SCADA systems or do you think it's it's evolved like past that a little bit? Um, so no, they're always facing challenges in that space, right? So what what we do is, is very uh, in that normalization space. So they've got usually got maybe one SCADA system existing that they've got on their plant. Um, or they've got multiple different solutions for that particular siloed process. So that, from an integration point of view, that creates really big challenges, right? So you're talking maybe different pro protocol at the field bus level, you're talking about a different pro uh, protocol at the PLC level, you're talking about even different uh, coding stacks or, you know, like different application layers. So what we, we're trying to do is, in, is create this normalization layer so they're all talking that same language. And, and that's where we see the most, um, you know, challenges within in, uh, companies is that they're trying to bring in disparate pieces of information under one umbrella as a single pane of glass within their business so that they can, they don't have to retrain on multiple different platforms. They can bring all that data all together and then contextualize it in one single source of truth for their business. Um, and that's where we're seeing the most, uh, I guess, growth in, in the market as that SCADA type application, uh, but growing into other areas of the business to be able to create a, uh, a holistic view of, of their business. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, speaking of uh, Ignition, I find that, that I guess like as SCADA systems or platforms evolve, now they provide a lot more under like the same roof or the same package, so to speak, right? Whereas before maybe you thought of a SCADA as like a, an isolated island that only kind of like passes your data, now it can do a lot more, right? And I think we talked with David about some examples where let's say Sepasoft now augments into like an MES solution, but ultimately even Ignition itself is capable of kind of processing that data and provide you with uh, with those dashboards. But Dave, maybe what, what are your thoughts? Because I know you've done a lot of these projects. What are your thoughts on uh, what Phil is saying and, and SCADA in general? Absolutely. So <clears throat> Phil, I, I think that you laid, uh, laid kind of best case scenario out very well, right? So if you're able to have kind of these architecture questions uh, very early on, you, you can make sure that, you know, the data sources, the data types, 
uh, the, the system is set up to allow for at some point in the future getting to that single pane of glass. And, and, and if we want to call that digital transformation as the outcome of digital transformation, or if we want to call that, you know, ideally what, what every owner or, or leader or CEO of a company should want. I mean, I guess from my perspective, the goal is for them to be able to, to pick up their phone to look at like six things. And if all of those six things are, are thumbs up or green check marks or whatever we want that to be, them to know that, hey, my facility is running good. I can go work on putting out the 4,000 other fires that I have. So I, I absolutely agree with Phil, kind of what you're saying in your assessment. I guess kind of my question is, is from where you guys stand, you, iControls, where you guys stand as the distributor, do you typically get to have those conversations with your customers going in, I guess in the world of nothing is typical, what is like that typical or that ideal style of conversation? Do they come to you with like nothing saying, hey, Phil, we need to go through a digital transformation. How do I get there? What, what do those conversations look like, Phil? So absolutely not. So no, no customer really comes in saying I need to digitally transform my business, right? That's, that is uh, probably a typical buzzword, right? Yep. Uh, there. But what, what we do is we, we actively listen. And that, yeah. is, that is the key part to any sort of discovery call is actively listening to the customer, understanding firstly where they are, What's the, what's the system that they're using currently? How is it working for them, right? Understanding what are the challenges within that system? What are their, obje you know, their uh, objectives in this, uh, this, this first discovery call? You know, what do, what's their best case scenario? What does that look like for them? And how can we plot a, a path for them utilizing ignition to be able to roll that out for them. And that, that might be, um, you know, talking about, you know, how, how can we show a return on investment for the, the customer? Mm -hmm. How are they going to be using the system? What are the outside use cases that other uh, particular stakeholders might utilize? So we might have a quality uh, quality person wanting to be able to have a reporting tool, or we might have a maintenance manager who wants to be able to schedule jobs and have a work instruction. You know, we might have the sales uh, people using it as a CRM or a, a, an ERP system. So there are different facets within the, the business that we can tailor, I guess, a conversation around by actively listening. And we do find that customers need more stakeholders. If they are to digitally transform, they need a team around them to be able to support them with those, those objectives. So we talk at uh, network security level, we talk at um, uh, infrastructure, what server sizing uh, they might need for the particular application. We talk at various different levels within the, the business to be able to build an internal business case for them to be able to utilize uh, Ignition as, as the product moving forward. Um, but we do need, we do offer that technical support, having a technical skills, skill set to be able to talk about those challenges at various different levels uh, within the with the business and we do have that within the eye controls team a very disparate uh, automation focused uh, team as well absolutely so so 
if I may, if I may, Vlad. So, so Phil, what are kind of the typical entry level conversations that you have? If it's not digital transformation, and mind you, I, I think in my, I don't know, in the last five years, I might have had half a dozen people actually men- mention the phrase digital transformation. I've heard yeah. industry 4.0 more often than that, but maybe half a dozen times have someone said, Dave, I need to digitally transform. In fact, most of the time when people ask me that question, the follow-up questions are, what does this mean and how do I do it, right? Exactly. Like like I read about this, but and it seems important, but I don't know what it is. So, so what what is it and how do I do it? So what are the normal entry points that, that people are coming in and, and starting to have conversations with you? So generally what how it comes is that the they're usually using a some sort of legacy SCADA system okay. that they have and it might be one or it might be multiple um, and they they really are finding challenges within that kind of older technology um, stacks or you know it's been working for them for a number of years but it's time you know to either renew their licensing or they need mm-hmm. to you know move into i guess the next stage of evolution of their business and they're hitting some walls within that infrastructure okay. well we come in and we kind of talk about capabilities and we talk about you know that you know what what they can do to expand that system um, without having to rip and replace because rip and replace is always that last ditch effort right to to get in what we do very well is add a layer of uh, above the top and be able okay. to ingest those those legacy type um, architectures to be able to normalize that data and distribute it um, using that unlimited uh, model that we we support I was going to ask, I guess, and you partially maybe answered my question, but, you know, how much uh, education do you have to typically do with customers, right? Like when they come to you maybe with a specific application or maybe even a a legacy system, my assumption is that they don't necessarily understand what they can do with, let's say, Ignition or any other platform for that matter. How much do you have to almost like go in there and kind of discover what they have and then figure out how it might fit certain applications and then not just, I want to say like, tell them here's like an application, but explain to them really well uh, what the business case might be. And, and, and that really depends on the room that you're talking to, right? That tailing that, tailoring that conversation to a, their skill set level, to their understanding of what the platform is. Do, do IT understand the OT uh, infrastructure mm-hmm. generally it's a different conversation right it might be at network security level it might be at access level it might be a you know how are we going to distribute that what's what hardware do we need you know what systems are out there so it really under understanding the room is is actually one of the key sales tools uh that you can have is is understanding you know what what education do i need to do uh, as part of this discovery um, section. And that really is, I guess, something that we do very well is being able to understand what the problem is, who's coming to us, what is their role within the business, what are their driving factors uh, for coming to us and asking these the, the questions that they are, and what's the overall picture look like within their um, business to be able to support them in, in getting to those objectives. And so it is, it is a, a kind of something that you learn only by doing <laughs> uh, yep. type approach. 
um, and and you can fall into some pitfalls as well. But the good thing is, is that if you, you know, I always try and say, I don't know. <laughs> if if there's something I don't know, I, I I will be honest about it, and I will ask the people that I do that do know, <laughs> basically. And I have a good supportive network to be able to to lean on uh, those those people to to be able to answer questions that I don't know. <laughs> No, I think that absolutely makes sense. And Phil, if I can expand a little bit on that, right? I'm curious, you know, if you're seeing a lot of projects. Again, I think that Industry 4.0 to some degree, like digital transformation is a fairly new or newish initiative, right? The way we're we're kind of rapidly changing, I want to say, in how we deploy these platforms. But are you seeing, you know, people kind of jump right on board and, you know, replacing their entire maybe infrastructure and rebuilding the architecture? Or are you seeing them maybe do like a, here's like a small project that we're going to test on a single line or maybe a single machine where we can get some of these analytics, then truly understand what the value is and then deploy. Like how, how do they look, uh, you know, from your perspective, is, is it a mixed bag, you know, of people, I'm just curious, you know, what you're seeing in the field. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we are really, I guess in Australia specifically, um, with ignition, we we've been around for 10 years um, but I guess we're still seeing growth in this space. So not so we're getting a very wide uh, range. So current users uh, of 10 years almost uh, using the platform um, coming to us and saying, look, we need to move it to the next section within their, their infrastructure. Then we've got totally new users who've never used it and, and, and we need full education around what the platform's capabilities are uh, at this point. And then we've got, you know, this, these system integrators that seeing opportunities within that sort of ecosystem to be able to leverage Ignition, to be able to roll out different applications within the same infrastructure as well. So there are this, there's this very wide conversation that is really around that discovery portion of that, that conversation that you're having with the customers. Um, but you know, we're seeing a rapid growth within Ignition. So they're doing lots of proof of concepts. Uh, you know, they're downloading Ignition, building full-scale um, architectures under the, the unlimited trial as well. And they're, you know, fully having, you know, de-risking themselves by understanding the platform and understanding that what the capabilities are and almost ready to go when they when they start um, delivering these solutions for them. Gotcha. And, and so just to, I guess, to be clear, you support other systems integrators and you support end users. That is that correct? Gotcha. Correct. correct. Is there a difference? So, yeah, we, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Is there a difference in the approach? Well, in the approach, right? And I guess like in the process, right? So I, I would assume that the, the systems integrators are, up, are a bit more like tech savvy. So they're like, you know, they know all the bells and whistles, but at the same time, maybe their understanding of like the business value needs to be kind of buffed up versus an end user. And that's just my assumption, right? I would like you to elaborate on this. The end users sure. understand the business value that they're seeking versus on the tech side, maybe a little bit less. That's right. That's right. So from an end user point of view, you know, they're looking for business outcomes. They're looking for increased productivity, overall efficiency, data availability right and and being able to access that that data 
whereas system integrators are identifying problems within that, that business ecosystem and then being able to use Ignition to deliver on those, uh, those systems. And, and so really, you know, Ignition for the system integrator is a tool for them to solve problems for their customers. And, and that just keeps on going, right? That's because there's an unlimited uh, um, architecture there, you can deliver project after project after project on the same infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So when, when the end user sees a return on investment, they may see it for the initial uh, POC or they may see it for the initial installation, but they'll see it for a long, lot longer um, period after that 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 period because we'll just extend 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 on the same uh, infrastructure. Bill, if I could follow up a slightly tangential question, but still yeah. very related to systems integration and SCADA. So on the HR side, right? So you said that the market is definitely expanding. I think we're seeing similar trends in, in the US and Europe. Are you seeing that there's a maybe a deficit in engineering talent or engineering technician, you know, people who deploy these systems? Is there a lack of talent currently that we see on the market? Do you see, you know, salaries growing? Do you see people struggling to hire? Is there, is that the opposite or are, are they going to, you know, different fields? So traditionally I've seen a lot of kind of instrumentation techs or engineers kind of come up and get into SCADA. Are you seeing maybe a trend where, you know, now that we're talking about Python, let's say for ignition. So a lot of software engineers come into uh, ignition. What are you seeing from like an HR standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. So from that traditional OT layer coming up into the, the SCADA level, um, it's it's a little bit tricky. There is a bit of a, I guess, a deficit there in, in terms of skill set that I do see in the market that, you know, that we need more more system integrators out there to be able to support a, a, a definitely an ignition growing uh, ecosystem for sure. And that's why we try and enable that education uh, period with free online training, uh, you know, through inductive university. Uh, and we also try and, um, I guess, do it more locally um, within our uh, our training facility as eye, eye controls as well. But we also have a, a as part of inductive universities, university engagement program, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, uh, we can actually support our local education bodies with um, licensing uh, that's, uh, that's available to them so that they can embed that in their curriculum so that we can prepare more engineers for the, for the, I guess, the industry. So we've got a few, I guess, a few, uh, challenges that we all face in terms of internal training, you know, upskilling uh, workforces. We are definitely seeing, I guess, more Python ready uh, students coming through that that operation, as you said, you know, and Ignition kind of lends itself to that with having a scripting language that is, you know, more structured text based and, and um, easy, you know, human readable <laughs> as yep. well. Um, so, you know, that really lends well to, I guess, the, the, the engineers of tomorrow being really, um, I guess, a vital part in that future for, for ignition and for, uh, I guess, the industry at, at large. And, and I would add to that, I guess, inductive uh, automation certainly raised the bar on the education side. And we're, we're by no means sponsored by, uh, by ignition, but I know that they provide really good, you know, educational materials that you've mentioned on their website. 
but they also and i think that's like really key they pair that with the free you know two hour license you can very easily reset and mm -hmm. try absolutely every single feature that you would get on the ignition platform and now i think and when i say now it's been at least a year and or maybe two years now they've released the maker's license right so that you can uh like as a student i'm assuming three, in four maybe maybe it's, it's been think, a while i think three or four yeah so, so I actually have a, a funny comment about the maker's license. So I don't know how many folks outside of Phil know that, know that the, especially the, the, the technical guys over at inductive automation, but they are some of the people who like love home automation more than anyone else I've ever met. And so the first time that you meet these guys that they talk about home automation, like five, six years ago, they were pulling out their phones and, and turning lights on and turning lights off. I'm pretty sure that they created this maker edition um, only to allow other people not to have to buy 50 or $60,000 of software to, to be able to, uh, to, to be able to go through the process of doing home automation in the same ways they do. And yeah, and yes, you know, uh, school people and, and everyone else can, can also get those tangential benefits. But, but the first time I saw it, I'm like, this looks like this is the home automation freebie license so that everyone can, uh, can go ahead and, and make some, some awesome uh, make some awesome things out of it. I, I want to like slightly shift uh, sh shift the conversation away, Phil. So, so you talked about some 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 legacy market. So one of the things that I always like to do whenever we've got people from different continents on is to talk a little bit about what the automation landscape looks like, and so we can compare it back to at least kind of what I generally know more so in, in North America than anything else. But before I put you on the spot, I will give all of our new Australian listeners a little bit of a kind of overview of kind of what the U.S., the, the, the American, uh, U.S. Canadian market looks like. And then if you guys are watching live, Vlad's actually going to go point to all the PLCs uh, behind him while we're doing this live. He doesn't know this yet, but, but now he does. So I would say kind of broadly, the, the vast majority of especially the hardware market that we see is, is Rockwell and Allen Bradley. I would say we're, we're conservatively 80 to 85 uh, percent, especially legacy Rockwell, Allen Bradley uh, PLCs. Um, we have maybe five to 10 percent Siemens. Vlad, you're supposed to be pointing. Yeah. So, so, so for, 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 for anyone listening on podcast form, Vlad, Vlad has, I don't know, two dozen different uh, PLCs and controllers and, and everything else behind it. So I, I feel like I've got to make the, I've got to make the poke at least once a show uh, while I can, but no, I would say the kind of the, the, the distant second, but the, the solid second is, is probably Siemens on the hardware side. So depending upon particular industries and verticals, we'll see, we'll see more Siemens. So Siemens, we, we talk a lot about them, especially in the, in the automotive sector um, in the U S and, uh, and the Americas. And then uh, kind of beyond that, it, it's kind of a, a smattering of everyone else. I would say since COVID happened, uh, since the supply chain crunch, um, we've seen a lot more, or at least we've heard a lot more people buying Opto 22s. Uh, Vlad can go ahead and point to the Opto 22. He's got a Rio and a Groove Epic up there. Thank you, Vlad. Um, and then we also see a lot more uh, PLC Nexts. And Vlad, now if anyone is frustrated that they can't get a PLC Next, it's because Vlad literally has all of them. And <laughs> I'm going to take this moment to go ahead and plug uh, the PLC Next uh, class that, that uh, Vlad and Solus PLC have put together. You guys can check that out on solusplc.com. 
They see. put a, they put yes, they put a whole bunch of things in there. Um, Vlad is probably the second most knowledgeable person about PLC next, uh, next to Phil, but that's because Phil spent an awful lot of time uh working and, and selling uh PLC next. But I would say it's great if you can get your hands on them. Um, and again, the only hard part is Vlad has stolen all of them, and that's why the market doesn't uh, doesn't have any PLC next in it. But uh, but no, to kind of reiterate, we see a lot of the US market on the hardware side. Being that uh, that Rockwell, that Alan Bradley, I would say on the software side, you see a lot of people who got into uh, the Wonderware, especially in the 90s. You know, if they went and if you went and you redid something in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, you almost certainly did it on Wonderware. Um, we see a lot of plant packs. We see a lot of uh, kind of beyond that. We, we see a variety kind of that smattering of those Siemens, depending upon industry specific verticals. Uh, Aviva and Wonderware still have a bunch of fairly industry-leading uh, but fairly proprietary uh, visualizations and softwares. And then I would say I, I see Ignition. I guess maybe I won't necessarily say I see Ignition, but I probably hear about one in three to one in two facilities at least know what Ignition is, which is significantly more than it was five years ago. So five years ago, I was selling primarily Ignition as part of MES. And uh, that was, I don't know, at least 50 or 60% of people didn't know what it was. Uh, but now I would say at least the vast majority of people, either they know what it is or within a quick Google, it will iterate. And uh, and it's not uncommon to see it brought up as a, uh, as a viable option. Um, and so I say all of that to give Phil the opportunity to uh, to think about what what the Australian market looks like, because again, we'd love to uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about what the what the Australian market looked like. And Vlad will again point to all of them behind his head while uh, while Phil is talking. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess uh, in the in the Australian market, very similar to to the US, but there are a few smatterings of uh, of other brands there that um, really have, I guess legacy type uh, applications within in Australia. And so we see um, a lot of uh, DCS systems from Yokogawa, mm -hmm. uh, from um, uh, Emerson's um, range out in the in the mining infrastructure and mm -hmm. oil and gas infrastructure, because we have a lot of that type of uh, infrastructure here in Australia being yeah. a, a quite resource driven uh, company. Uh, country yeah. um, uh, as well. So we, we have some challenges there around remote connectivity and sort of that sort of stage. Uh, we also have um, a large uh, infrastructure when it comes to Schneider, SciTech uh, infrastructure in the water industry, uh, especially in the utility space. Mm -hmm. um, we're definitely seeing, I guess, more uh, Siemens and Alan Bradley, of course, is is a huge uh, proportion of the market here in, in Australia as well. So there are, we get kind of all the different <laughs> mix of everything because we are, you know, as a country, we're not too old, right? 150 odd years old. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, we get kind of some of the, I guess immigration of the of the different systems. So depending on you know who put it in at what point of time, <laughs> uh, we get a kind of a smattering of everything, uh, pretty much. But yeah, we have a large proportion of Alan Bradley, and um, and we're seeing as, as you said a move to Opto Twenty Two's hardware as well. Um, yeah. iControls is a is a, a distributor for Opto Twenty Two as well, so we support that that range locally uh, as well. And um, yeah, we have a I guess a 
big range of uh, of products and uh, out in Australia. So I, I love that. And I want to follow up on that Opto 22, because one of the favorite things that I see posted on LinkedIn is, is yes, is Phil talking about the Opto 22 and the EMU, right? Uh, so the energy management unit that, that they have come out with. And I Built think for Australia, most- I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. No, I I was going to say, I think my favorite post I've seen about it is Phil posting the the controller and then posting the bird next to it. Um, And and I forget what the text was. I just remember that I spent five or 10 minutes kind of laughing about that. So do you see the move towards a lot of energy management? Is that that a newer thing out in Australia? I guess, from my perspective, I, I read and have read for the last four or five years about energy issues, right? Like there's never enough energy. Um, and so do you see a lot of people managing energy and is, is that a new thing or is, is there a move towards doing more of that? Well, you know, socially we have a responsibility to be more sustainable, right? At the end of the end of the day, but we also have this uh, move towards renewable uh, energy and data store uh, and uh, energy storage as well in that utility space. So we have to really manage the network infrastructure in in a really strategic way because otherwise we have these imbalances on the network which cause all kinds of issues. So from a from a local level, if we're monitoring and managing the, that that infrastructure, so the the EMU is perfect for man- monitoring you know one particular process line or one particular particular piece of equipment to enable you to make decisions whether or not it's worth running at this particular time or mm-hmm. you know how much are we actually paying for energy when we're running this particular line and is it cost effective to do so so collecting that data especially in that energy usage space is really vital for any mm-hmm. business to be able to give that holistic view right uh, should we be investing in solar on the roof to be able mm-hmm. to supplement some of that energy, right? Can we can we run the office on solar and the production line off the grid? You know, like you can start making these educated decisions around mm-hmm. how you accumulate your data by, you know, st- st- putting one of these uh, Opto22 uh, group Rios, you know, uh, straight there on on the edge and be able to collect that data into your your infrastructure really easily as well um so yeah that's a it's a really good question absolutely and so i so i know vlad has a question but i've got a comment on, on energy um actually i've got a couple of comments on energy so uh from from the first time i saw the the the, the emu um my, my first thought is man wouldn't it be great to be able to go talk to a site and go drop a box off with one of these, you know, put current transformers, clip it on a couple of places, kind of monitor the energy, leave it in the box and come back a week or two later with with some nice visualizations to say, hey, this is how much energy we actually used compared to maybe what we think we used and overlay that with the cost per kilowatt hour. I think that that would, I guess, that's one of those things that may be a winter project on on my side is how can I go put that together uh, to to make it easy and uh, and feasible to uh, to do that or potentially do that in scale. Um, And I I love the comments that you had about solar, Phil. I would say that um, I had a a group that I work with who did a project, uh, kind of their end user had the problem of, well, basically they never knew how much power was going to cost them. And kind of the, the, the power energy company was able to kind of give them kind of a range 
but the range was like plus or minus, I don't know, 25%, which isn't super helpful when they spent more than a million dollars a month in power, right? So it's very hard to kind of guess what it is. So the initial request was help us figure out how much we're going to be. I think the initial hope was like plus or minus 10%. And I think they got it to plus or minus like 0.5, 1%, uh, something along those lines. And so there, there was kind of that initial, hey, we know how much power we're using. This is amazing. We can go kind of monitor how much power we're using per piece of equipment. And then kind of the next easy step for them was cogeneration. So at least in the States, some, depending upon where you are, you may be required contractually through the power company to do cogeneration. Uh, with them, they were, they were big um, they were big, uh, generate, we'll just call them big generators. Right. And so kind of, for, so for them, the, the easy step was going to figure out how much, like what days of the month are the most expensive. And then depending upon what days of the month are most expensive, just plan to go run the cogeneration during those days or any day that is above X number of cents or dollars per kilowatt hour. Um, we are going to go run the cogeneration because we actually save money running the cogeneration on those days. So I think that there is a, a lot of good opportunities for almost every every large facility that I work with to have a better idea of how much energy each of their buildings, lines, plants are using, and then make valuable um, make valuable uh, decisions based upon those. I was going to make the comment, uh, you know, because I've run energy savings projects and I think there's even, I want to say like lower hanging fruit. Once you install these monitoring systems, you can correct just like pure loads and based on your power factor, usually you get charged a premium. So again, something like very, like very first couple of days, you can immediately see what's going on on a specific production line or even site and you can just literally rebalance your inductive loads and that very quickly pays for, you know, the device, first of all, but also the labor put in on installing it in uh, in the facility. But as they've mentioned, I, I think it can go, you know, very far in terms of like, what can you do? Um, but it, again, I think there's kind of like first fundamental steps. And I can tell you even something as simple as we're doing a changeover that takes, you know, like six hours and that's done every week. So just shutting down the conveyors, which is normally not done because again, nobody monitors energy consumption pays yep. for the device within, you know, a couple of months. So usually just very simple changes in the way the process is automated is very easy to pay for itself. And that's not even considering all the auxiliary, right? Like you can, again, go into different energy sources and balancing it based on days. And, uh, you know, I've never gotten into like that deep of a, of an experience, but like I said, it was very quick with just the, uh, the few examples that I mentioned. Yeah, but as you said, you like if you're monitoring several different lines, you can compare the how they are moving it, you know, effectively. That might mean that one particular motor might need a bearing change, right? Yep. <laughs> that it might be just as simple as that. Just, you know, being able to compare multiple different lines gives you that opportunity to have a wider view on the system and make decisions. Why is this running not as effective as as possible? then you can actually identify a problem for you to solve. And, and that's what it's about, is creating that data visibility to make educated decisions. And a lot of times, you know, that's where the capability of uh, drives comes in, that they can monitor that almost themselves. But in many instances, I don't see end users like capturing that data. I think they're getting better and better, but I think it's kind of a, 
maybe one of those like engineering metrics that uh, someone who really knows, I want to say like power factor correction and how that impacts mm-hmm. the line wants to gather, but it's more used for troubleshooting right now. But yes, I agree that uh, you can certainly do a lot of with that data if you know what you're doing. And again, I think that goes back to our conversation on having context, understanding what it means, understanding where it's tied into, going right into your SCADA and then going into an analytics tool that is designed specifically for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we talk about context, you know, so when we're all the people that are on the plant floor, they hold all that context. So it's a really important um, discussion from our perspective is that we talk to the end users at various different layers of that, that business to be able to communicate that context layer up through the business because the guys on the floor know, you know, why this machine has been running like it has for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, someone at the IT le- layer won't understand, you know, what they need to see on the screen to be able to make sure that, you know, that alarm management system is going to alert them when something goes out of spec, right? Mm-hmm. So that that contextualization and discussion goes all the way through the business. And that's where a system integrator is really good to to understand some of that process and some of that intrinsic knowledge that is held within that plant floor infrastructure and be able to, uh, you know, communicate that to the rest of the business through, you know, maybe a a dashboarding tool or, uh, you know, as as Dave said, those six points of health for their business, Uh, you know, and so that's that's where uh, there's real power in distributing that contextualization. Absolutely. I, I would agree. And I would say that I find that that's even a big differentiators between systems integrators from one to the other. There, there are many people who are able to go pull data points from a PLC and put it in a dashboard. I, I mean, I've seen some who put it in kind of like a, a butchered looking Excel spreadsheet um, on, on an ignition page, right? But I, I find that the the best uh, systems integrators are the people that are able to help contextualize what the data looks like and be able to talk to it from groups at a variety of different levels, right? Because to Phil's point, that the people who know how the machine runs and why the machine runs that way, they're going to look for some very specific things to, to make sure that the machine is running well. And maybe they can go look at that on a dashboard while they're in the middle of doing other things to make sure that the machine is running well. But the line owner, generally doesn't care about the thing. He generally cares that the the line, that the machines within the line are running well. And, and the engineering managers are going to care about different things. And the, the plant managers are going to care about different things. And if you get to a point that you've got a person who is in charge of six, eight, 10, a dozen plants, they care about very different things than the people who are actively working on the machines. And I think that that's some of the biggest opportunities that we will see as, as we look into the future and kind of differentiators, both from system to system and integrators and other people who can have those conversations and tell those stories in, in easy ways. Uh, and kind of to that point, we have a question or maybe a comment here from, from Carolina. Uh, she says, hey, everyone, uh, Phil, in the case of having um, having a project that contains a large amount of data uh, where the client wants them to be historized, uh, do you find a way to propose a solution that is competitive so that other brands, uh, c- competitive to other brands that are maybe more into the historization of that data? Um, 
she says that they understand that Ignition works with any SQL database. And can you share some experience that, that lead to positive outcomes, right? So I, I think that the comment is towards the, the historization. And do you, I, I guess, I, again, we don't know the Australian market, but we find that more and more organizations are storing more data. And we had a, a long conversation last week about should we store everything or should we not store everything? We don't have to rehab that conversation now. Okay. But we find we find more and more organizations are wanting to store more data points somewhere between more and all of their data points. How do you see maybe the, the offerings that you guys have, Ignition and otherwise, comparing to other solutions um, that, that you compete against? Yeah, so I guess... Uh... In terms of data storage and, and, and looking at that sort of database uh, ecosystem, as, as Carolina mentioned, that we are as SQL-based uh, um, uh, platform. So we anything with a JDBC driver can be connected to that. So that gives you, that really enables choice, right? So you might want to have a particular flavor of database for a particular performance issue. So you're able to, like change um, your strategy in terms of data storage to be able to suit your application. We've seen many um, customers using uh, Ignition as that accumulation layer mm -hmm. because you know they have a, a uh, long-term storage strategy, but they don't, aren't able to, I guess, access that long-term storage in a really effective way. So mm -hmm. what they do is they use Ignition as a, a middleware layer mm -hmm. to be able to ingest all that data and access it in a, in a highly efficient manner. Uh, and that might be a localized uh, or a distributed uh, historian type architecture so that local site might have a history, historian database um, or it might be in the in the central uh, at like administrative hub or you know various different um, places around the, the the architecture itself. Absolutely, and and I will throw out to that uh, for everyone that doesn't know, I spent an awful large portion of the of the previous years of my life working in the ignition ecosystem. But if you want to, you don't have to connect it to that SQL database, right? You can go, you can pull it out into a time series database if you want to do an, an OSI soft pie, uh, which at least in most of, of what I see is is kind of the gold standard, be it OSI soft itself or the Rockwell historian or the Emerson historian or maybe one or two of the, the Wonderware historians. Th those kind of always get a little uh, iffy for me. But the OSI soft pie has always been the gold standard. I know you can go connect uh, Canary um, if you want another uh, good time series database op base option. I've seen people roll their own uh, time series databases on Ignition with, with InfluxDB or, or something along those lines. So um, SQL is kind of what you get generally out of the box. It's very easy for most people. But if you want to get in and use some of those other tools, as, as Phil mentioned, uh, uh, yes, Ignition as a middleware to go collect all that data. Maybe you do some crazy things like contextualize it or normalize it. So all of the tags that go into the, these end systems um, actually make sense. And we don't have to spend, we don't have to spend two years before having a data scientist go back to, uh, to actually contextualize these. You guys could do crazy things like contextualize them in the Ignition ecosystem uh, before they go to a time series database. Uh, kind of the world the, the sky is the uh, sky is the limit. And I would say to, to Carolina, if you had any other questions, you can feel free to 
to reach out to Phil, especially if you are over in Australia or to, to myself or Vlad, if you've got any other questions and are looking for some help on that. Phil, I want to follow up with a, a lighter discussion. So shifting gears a little bit, you've, uh, you've built uh, quite a brand on LinkedIn as part of, uh, you know, your sales journey, if you want to call it that, as, as, uh, I guess, or your journey, I guess, to become a more digitally transformed salesperson, if I, if I can put a, a label on that. That being said, yeah. maybe could you walk us through, you know, how and I guess like why your mindset sh- shifted maybe from the traditional selling to LinkedIn? And I'd also be interested in maybe, you know, stepping in the shoes of, I want to say like a smaller systems integrator who's just getting started or maybe has a few employees, what kind of advice you would give them if you, if they would want to attempt a a similar path to you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so LinkedIn, the motivator for LinkedIn was, you know, the, the rise of social media, (laughs) the, the, you know, as a communication point, it's, uh, it's really powerful in talking to the, the many, not the few, right. Uh, But doing it in a really personal way uh, and and that's the motivation for me is actually I'm just a, a, a an oversharer more more than anything <laughs> a classic uh, oversharer so anything I kind of learn I wanted to distribute and understand so that through my Phoenix years I was learning about different products within the range that no one had ever heard about or my customers hadn't heard about or you know they didn't know particularly about this particular product or this particular problem that I was trying to solve for another customer and Mm -hmm. and it's really really about adding that value um to to my to my immediate customers and the wider audience I'm I'm about you know supporting others to succeed and and that's really my driving factor and from a uh, I guess a uh, operational point of view from LinkedIn you know as it's really about commitment to (laughs) to doing something regularly right I, I try and be active and really be an active participant in a co- community. So creating, I guess, being quite creative myself, have, enjoying it as well, having a lot of fun with different products or smart home devices or, you know, different skaters platforms or whatever I'm doing at the time. And it might be, you know, learning a bit about Python or it might be learning about Node-RED or uh, MQTT or whatever I'm doing at the time. I'm just thinking about how can I share this knowledge? How can I, you know, make it consumable to the wider audience? Um, It doesn't always have to be highly technical. It can be really ingestible um, and I really wanted to really support by kind of broadening everyone's horizons uh, about what's possible Um, because if I can solve one person's problem today with one post then that's that's my mission complete (laughs) really And, and so I really am here just to really keep doing what I'm doing and keep having fun and meeting new people like you guys and the wider uh, automation community. And look, if, if they are, um, you know, feel free to get in touch with me because that's what I want to do is I want to build, you know, these friends online and build a, a network of, of like-minded individuals that share my passion for, for automation in whether that be at home or in, at, uh, in an industrial setting. <laughs> 
I will say, I guess, if you're listening to this in podcast form, all the links, uh, especially to Phil's uh, LinkedIn channel, are going to be mm-hmm. in the description. So you'll, you'll be able to stop on your way to work or, or home and find them uh, under the podcast. That being said, Phil, I guess any any words of wisdom or thoughts around that side, you know, for someone who's maybe afraid to get started or, again, is maybe very technically savvy but doesn't know how to start like selling or maybe just exposing their thoughts out there on LinkedIn or otherwise, right? I think it's not necessarily a strategy for purely LinkedIn, but just sort of changing the way uh, we did sales back in in the day, I want to say, but obviously you're a lot more familiar with the, with the industry. So I'm going to let you speak on, on that point. Well, look, I, if I have any advice to anyone trying to, I guess, build a personal brand or mm-hmm. create a community it's be your true authentic self. That's that's the only thing you need to do, right? If you if you really want to share the knowledge or share everything, I see it all the time in forums across the internet, right? Is people sharing their knowledge base, people on YouTube, you know, creating content and and really trying to add something to the community. And there's plenty of open uh, source community out there so you can download you know node red for for free so if you're getting you know really uh, you want to understand an iot type of ecosystem and you want to learn mqtt that's a really good starting point you can use ignition maker which is a free resource as well to create your own home automation system you know there are real platforms out there that we can really leverage to grow our knowledge base as a whole wider Well, nope. sounds like Phil was uh, at the tip top of that point, but uh, hopefully he's able to reconnect momentarily. But no, I, I would agree that, you know, there's a lot of tools. Phil, we lost you for just a second. Sorry. We're going to finish yes. that point. Uh, but I, I would agree, I guess, on, on that point and let you finish your thought as well, that there's a lot of free tools that you can certainly get involved in, right? Uh, I'm assuming that's what you were going to say, but Absolutely. I'll let you continue. <laughs> No, absolutely. So yeah, you can download uh, various different platforms to be able to increase your uh, knowledge base, right? And leverage those online tool sets to to really develop high quality home automation systems mm-hmm. that can be developed then out in the in the real world and test you know your knowledge and learn uh, yeah SQL and learn uh, Python and learn MQTT and and all these technologies to be able to apply in your everyday life as well so there's plenty of resources out there absolutely i i, I love this <clears throat> i love this phil uh b- before we get to the uh the, the normal closing questions that we ask everyone i, I guess the, the question for you is is there anything that we haven't asked you about distribution about australia about your crazy journey from london to australia is is there anything that we should have asked you that we haven't asked you yet well, I guess one one point is that Australia is a vast country, right? And so we have um, some real challenges in remote connectivity. Okay. So that is one thing that we really, I guess, try and support our customers with is is understanding that application where you're you've got very disparate um, networking infrastructure. You mm-hmm. might have 3G, you might have 4G, you might have LTE, you might have LoRa connections, you might have all these different technology stacks 
within your ecosystem and understanding, I guess, uh, the benefits of particular technology stacks is, is really key for especially Australian projects, um, where and when to apply uh, different technologies is, is something that, you know, we're looking for. And, and MQTT enables that uh, really well, uh, mm-hmm. that remote connectivity portion of, of um, definitely our customer base because it enables that store and forward capability, you know, where you've got spotty connections, you can backfill data and you never lose a, a drop of it. So mm-hmm. that's that's a real key focus for Australian, uh, the Australian landscape basically physically and, yep. <laughs> and from the infrastructure point of view. Okay, so, so that's interesting. So do you guys see a lot of, so I would imagine you guys see a lot of edge gateways to help with that, that store and forward. Do you guys find a lot of radio, uh, kind of, you know, long range radio? Do you guys find a lot of cellular? Do you guys use, do, does satellite exist? I mean, what do, what does that landscape look like? How does, how do I would assume the vast majority of people that make things in Australia who aren't along the coast um, and, and near major cities. How how does that typically happen? Well, we're, we're seeing, a, I guess, a, a, a vast array of solutions in that space. Mm-hmm. So it could, could be a 900 megahertz radio. Yep. It could be internal Wi-Fi connections. Mm-hmm. It could be a satellite and, you know, and Starlink, you know, or, or other satellite providers is starting to become more of a conversation point within the, the industry as well. And that connectivity portion, because we're so disparate and we're monitoring assets that may be hundreds of thousands of hectares in terms of, you know, literally farms that are, size of countries within mm-hmm. Australia, right? Uh, um, we need that connectivity conversation to be able to accumulate all that data and, and still keep uh, consistency in that data set as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's an interesting conversation around that con- connectivity portion, especially for Australian customers. Very interesting. I, I have certainly dealt with a number of those um, th- those applications, although when I find those remote applications, it's typically mountainous terrain or large trees or other things that, that cause issues more than, uh, you know, this ranch is the size of, I don't know, Rhode Island. And, uh, and the issue is that, uh, that we own a ranch the size of Rhode Island or, or West Texas or, or something, uh, so- something along those lines. So uh, the vastness of the continent and the country that, that is Australia, I imagine, uh, brings its own unique set, uh, u- its own unique set of challenges. So, do you find more and more uh, kind of uh, of these remote applications are coming to try to leverage technologies? Um, yeah, I guess are you seeing more and more of them kind of coming to to leverage these technologies, and then also saying, "Hey, we need to go connect ourselves to the internet so that we can go." Uh, you, you know, go acquire all the value of the data science of, you know, AWS and Greengrass and, and, and all of those other machine learning capabilities. Yeah. So from a domestic point of view, like uh, agritech is mm-hmm. at the moment really growing in that space. You know, they're, they're bringing in all these IOT devices mm-hmm. from, uh, from agricultural, um, you know, animal management systems, mm-hmm. you know, that have inbuilt satellite tags 
that are on the necks of the the cows because that yeah. you know time is money right fuel fuel for a helicopter yeah. to try and find that that animal is going to be costly and if you don't know where it is right in the olden days they use radio uh, transmitters to be able to track them but now they can get precise gps data from where that particular animal is you know and that that really will save a huge amounts in cost and time for those for those customers that use that type of uh, application and then you know monitoring water is a huge priority for mm -hmm. australian customers in the in the deserts of of, of the australian yeah. outback right where water sometimes rains maybe not even once a year you know that mm -hmm. type of arrangement so you know, understanding what your dam levels are, what your use, your water usage is, you know, those types of applications really need vital, uh, I guess, monitoring uh, from that that point of view as well. So, yeah, it's it is it is a growing uh, I, IoT type landscape here in in Australia, and we're seeing some really high tech solutions coming out of uh, Australia, and um, it's it's been really interesting to see that evolve. But that is very interesting. So I will make the comment if anyone is 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 interested in that sustainability in that IIoT style um, offerings. We actually had a really good conversation on episode sixty four with a gentleman named Rob Robert Tiffany, um, kind of about that. He is he is building a company that they are moving towards. How can we go help people do this? And we actually had a very long conversation, not necessarily about the technology, but how do we go deploy a workforce to be able to allow us to go deploy this technology? And his comment, um, I, I will kind of summarize it uh, for everyone, was, was something to the effect of, if even if we only have to deploy one of these sensors every acre, every hectare uh, for, uh, for our Australian listeners, um, and they, there is a thousand or ten thousand hectares of this location. It's and it only takes an hour to do each one. It's ten thousand hours, right? It's five man years to be able to go to deploy all of these. And we can't have one person go spend five years doing this. So how do we go build a sustainable workforce? I think Rob's comments were something around IIoT is the plumbing of the industrial world. So we need to build a new group of plumbers to allow us to go kind of bring this to, to the rest of, I mean, the outback. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll go with the outback. And so I think that that's a very interesting path that, that we as a community, we as a world are going to have to go figure out. Because if we want more information and more data from these remote places or even these not so remote places, we need to go figure out how to put together a, a group, a, a not insubstantial group of people in order to help us go deploy these. And then at some point, these are going to go break. So now we have to go find people to, to go troubleshoot them or replace them or kind of anything along that line. But but I think the future will be very interesting. And talking about the future, Phil, I, we always like to, to put our guests on the spot and ask you guys to predict the future, right? So so, so we, we talked about a whole bunch of different things, and I guess I'm going to open it up and, and ask you to predict the future. So the next time you're on, be it six months or another year from now, we, we can look back and say, wow, Phil either really nailed it or wow, Phil, Phil uh, really whiffed on this. Um, maybe, maybe we have to go give him another chance to uh, to predict this and then come back. So Phil, what do you think the, the, the future of automation, of distribution, of manufacturing? What does that look like in your mind? Look, 
I I have a few hopes and dreams in that space, I guess. And, I, and the hope is that, you know, more openness is, is uh, available within the industry. We do see some, I guess, more proprietary systems out there that, that seem to, um, you know, lock down a lot of those silos. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking for, you know, an ecosystem of openness that share different, uh, I guess, data points and different uh, observations and, and really do a collaborative approach because that's really what I'm, I'm about is collaboration. And I see, I guess, a real drive. I, I'm, I'm seeing more drive towards openness, uh, you know, more recently, but I really hope that that, that is the future of automation is that interoperability. Uh, portion and openness and and really driving those core values uh, through to the industry and that's what I'll be trying to do in my own day-to-day life as well. Absolutely I think that that would be amazing Um, I think that would be amazing if we are to uh, if we are to get there we have talked certainly in the past about our hope for open whether it be open source or, or more open connect, open ability to kind of rip, rip and replace components um, into the future. I, I think I have said, I hope we get there in our lifetimes, but w- with how closed off and siloed we are, I think we've made great progress in the last five to, to 10 years. There's just an awfully long way to go before we get to the openness. But uh, I know I speak for Vlad and myself that, that we are very hopeful that we get there um, at some point. Vlad hopes we get there yesterday. But I am hopeful we will maybe get there at, at some point within our lifetimes. Uh, but but speaking of content, Phil, uh, you, you talked about content. You talked about consistency. Now is the time that, that we love to ask for recommendations. So if people aren't following you on LinkedIn, first go follow Phil um, on LinkedIn to go see his, his daily uh, comments about Ignition, about hardware, software, automation, manufacturing. Maybe he'll post some more emu uh, pictures, uh, and then I'll spend the next 10 minutes laughing. But besides you, Phil, what other content recommendations do you have? Who else should we go follow? Who else should we go? What else should we go look at? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a few, I guess, left field, not so mainstream uh, I guess content creators that I'd like to kind of shout out in this uh, in this opportunity. Um, one early doors uh, real contributor to my career was uh, a guy called Raju Raj uh, Singh, who mm-hmm. does the code and compile uh, channel, and and that's okay. a real opportunity to to learn everything that you need from Node Red to to uh, modeling and mm-hmm. ignition and all these all kind of different platforms that he's he's creating real content around and that's a that's a real vital one and you can find them on, on YouTube as well. There are some IoT type uh, I guess channels out there as well. One is by a I guess a Swiss guy called uh, Andreas Beast and he's and I'll send you all the links to put in the comments for sure. Um, and he does all. Uh, so like Arduino-based, Raspberry Pi, MCUs, all homemaker-type projects, but really are kind of laying foundations for industrial IoT. So he, you know, explains all those MQTT and LoRa and MBIoT and all these other different IoT pro- protocols and principles that kind of blow your mind about what's what's can, what can be done and, and not for huge amounts of outlaying cost. Uh, as well so that's always a benefit and then I've got uh, the um, another one which is a little bit sm- small as well it's an English guy called Steve Cope 
and he does a lot of uh, Node Red based uh, content as well, and, and that's a really good resource uh, to on be YouTube? able to, to leverage. Yeah, it's on it's on YouTube. Yeah, Steve Cope says C O P E, uh, and he does a lot of it, same sort of similar uh, industry for industry for IoT type uh, infrastructure, but from a very high highly technical uh, point of view as well so that's a that's a one uh to do and then there's the industry for solutions guys and iot university uh and then obviously one thing i will say is download ignition maker because that is going to be your playground for all of these different technologies in an industrial setting <laughs> and you know i have a lot of fun developing you know within my uh, linkedin uh, um, channel and uh, and stuff and and uh, sharing some of those projects that I've done internally, like connecting to my robot vacuum cleaner, creating a pantry <laughs> inventory system, uh, and creating some really cool uh, uh, projects there as well. So, yeah, there's plenty out there to be able to um, to leverage. You know, I've been uh, a bit like shy on pulling the trigger on the house automation things because. From what I heard, it becomes a little bit touchy with the next owner, you know, when they come in and they need to understand what's going on. But uh, it, it's really interesting. I guess like it's becoming more and more like plug and play. And like I'm assuming your ignition instance just runs like on a, on a smaller device, like an IPC or maybe even like a Raspberry Pi in that sense. And so it's easier. At the, at the moment, it's just running on my desktop computer. <laughs> okay, okay. Just for but, flexibility, but the aim is yes to move it to an I, a small IPC. Gotcha. No, it's interesting, and I guess like I've not dove into maybe some of those projects, but I've certainly heard of a lot of people going that route. Like I said, I'm I'm just a little bit worried, maybe for someone who's not permanently settled here, or maybe thinking of like some other options in a couple of years, what that would look like during the during the sale. But I, I think it well, would they, be really cool to do it. Well, the good thing is, is that you can use wireless technology, right? Mm -hmm. You can use light bulbs that just plug in smart light bulbs. You can use uh, different technology stacks to be able yep. to enable it. So they, they can be mobile devices. So you can have a temperature and humidity sensor that is just battery operated. You can have a door sensor that is just battery operated, right? And, and you're able to take those movable objects with you and you can use, you know, home assistant on a, a raspberry pi or a, yep. or a node red or you know all these things don't have to be fixed uh, as well so you're able to you know do it within your rental uh, accommodation you know and and still have that comfort of home automation but be able to remove it when you do eventually move on um, so there are different tactics around that as well yeah i'll need Absolutely. to read up about it a bit more so, so Vlad, I can hook you up with some podcasts that will take you way into the rabbit hole of home automation and do's and don'ts and smart plugs and all of those things. What we really want to see you do, uh, Vlad, is to run all of it on uh, on Ignition Maker on a Mac Mini that uh, that lives somewhere directly behind you. Maybe we just Velcro it to the wall on the Mac Mini that lives directly be behind you. That's what the world wants to see. So, so we'll see if we, if Phil and I can't twist Vlad's arm and uh, get him to do that. Uh, but, but no, I, I think that uh, that all of those are really good recommendations. Uh, thank you, Phil. I know uh, RIP both Vlad and my's uh, YouTube YouTube algorithm. Um, after we go spend the next uh, five or six hours uh, watching a bunch of those videos. So thank you for that. Uh, so we always love to to ask about career advice and. 
I loved how at the very beginning, you said that you have a very non-traditional career path um, in order to get you where you are um, in, in automation, in sales, in uh, in distribution. And Don, Phil, I, I think that I speak for the last uh, 85 guests when I tell you that I don't think that there is a linear career path to get where any of us have gotten. Um, if, if I have learned anything, it's that there is no linear career path. There are very few people that go to college and take like a, a, a mechademics uh, style course and then end up in manufacturing and automation and, and sales engineering. So uh, we, we love to ask for some career advice for, from you with a very broad career. Wh uh, what is your career advice uh, for people looking to get into the industry or maybe looking to make the step into a sales position? Well, the key thing for me, it was always find something that you love, right? If you're there's a, an old saying that if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life, right? Mm -hmm. yep. And and that's what I've tried to kind of do. And that might not be, you know, that I love the, the thing that I was doing for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. But if you can find something that aligns with your passions and aligns with um, what you're happy doing with at the time, then you, you will never work in, in your life so that's really the core fundamentals is, is finding something that you're passionate about mm -hmm. maybe looking looking particularly for that industry uh, that supports those either you know technicalities or that that environment that will enable you to be a really successful person you know and have that supportive network to enable you to do that sort of thing and that's that's a that's a challenge in itself to try and find those roles but you know, they're out there and you can certainly feel that niche where, where you need to, but, you know, and try and craft a career path that you're ultimately happy with. I, I love that. That is great. I'm going to ask the slight follow-up question because it is very, uh, it, it is something I'm sure Vlad will ask whether on or off stream is moving from the, those technical uh, positions into into a sales position was it was it, i mean you're still here so i assume that it was a generally positive uh path but there is there's always some sort of leap to go from the hey i'm the person doing the work to now i'm going to go talk to people to convince them that we need to do the work and and maybe i will maybe i won't be the person who who does that work so moving from the, the technical side to the sales engineering position uh, do you have any career advice, uh, any, anyone looking, any career advice maybe for someone looking before they go make the leap from that position to a sales engineering position? Yeah, so there are some challenges when moving from a technical role to a more front of house role, right? And, and that comes with some of the sales activities that are, you know, required as part of the role in, in sales, and that is the communication piece. You know, I found myself when I'm first moving into sales really nervous and and kind of jittery when I had to pick up a phone and call, call a customer that I had never spoken to ever before. And that was a real challenge. But if I can give one piece of advice there is just do it, right? And keep doing it and keep practicing and keep grinding away at that because the more you flex, the more you practice, the better and easier it will become. You know, I really don't like public speaking. I'm, I've kind of, one of the reasons why it's taken so long to get on this podcast is me to have the courage to do so, right, uh, as well. So, uh, but, you know, 
when you're at a point where you've practiced enough, you've done enough online kind of content or you've called the customer, you know, four or five times and you start getting a rhythm, then it becomes more natural for you to be able to do that. And, and you get outside of that, you know, fear factor mm -hmm. into that more comfortable zone uh, and you'll find yourself loving what you do. Absolutely. I think that that's great advice. And I will say anyone who is an engineer going from the technical role to the sales role, remember, you get to promise that everything will be done for no extra budget, and no extra time, because you're no longer the person who has to go do the work at the end. You can be the person that, that everyone hates with memes on the internet. Uh, but, but no, I, I think that that was some amazing advice. I appreciate that, Phil. And then then last question that we have for you is who should reach out who do you want to connect with? Who do you want to talk about? Uh, what sort of customer is, is iControls looking for? Uh, are you guys hiring kind of any and all of those things? This is, is your opportunity to ask our listeners um, anything. Yeah. So, I mean, really, I guess, follow me on LinkedIn. Um, also follow our iControls uh, page as well. So we're starting to, I guess, create more digital content around, uh, you know, more broader topics as well uh, for next year. Uh, and we're really looking for, I guess, end users that are, have those ingrained challenges within their business that we can help and really architect solutions that enable you to be able to grow and scale those, those operations um, really in an unlimited way. And, and that's, that's where we really show our, our, our true value is, is understanding the, the customer's current situation and and how we can move them forward within their, their infrastructure. So please look, follow that uh, for the uh, iControls LinkedIn page. Have a look at our website, www.icontrols.com.au uh, and get in contact with us mostly and, and really just kind of start the conversation because that's where we, we really want to be. This, this is amazing. Phil, thank you so much. And, and thank you everyone for listening. Again, if you are from Australia listening for the first time, there's typically only 5% of you on the podcast. Uh, so five or 10 of you a week that, uh, that go download it. Thank you guys very much. Um, I will go ahead and make the comment because I have learned that if I ask people to like and subscribe and download our stuff, people like and subscribe and download our stuff, which helps push more of it into, into everyone's feed. So if you guys are listening on podcast format, please feel free to go rate us five stars everywhere you can rate us five stars. Please feel free to subscribe so it auto downloads into your, your ear holes You know, every week. Our, our podcasts come out on Thursdays. We are live on LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitch and Facebook and all of those other places every Wednesday afternoon or early evening or maybe very early in the morning if you guys are on Australia. Uh, time. Um, and then if you want to check us out, you guys can find us at manufacturinghub.live, which is where all of our podcasts and everything funnel into. If you want to see the previous guests, if you guys want to go ahead and do any of those things, uh, please feel free to do that. If you've got questions, thoughts, comments, please feel free to reach out. If you guys have ideas on guests or other things, we always love having conversations with you. Until next week, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in.